following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying if you cast us out send us away into the herd of pigs and he said to them go so they came out and went into the pigs and behold the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters the herdsmen fled and going into the city they told everything especially what happened to the demon possessed men And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some of the people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Uh, as uh, Nathan already mentioned, a uh, good introduction, um, that in this, in this section, uh, we're seeing Jesus conquer several different kinds of, of evil, uh, destructive powers that are uh, evident in the world. And we looked last week uh, when uh, they were crossing the Sea of Galilee in the first place, uh, that a storm came up and Jesus rebuked the storm. And it's interesting that he uses the word rebuke, which is uh, what, what he does also to demons. Um, uh, but he shows that he has power over the forces of nature. And then we see in these stories that, that Jesus has power over demonic forces. And then in the last one, even power to forgive sin. Um, and it raises the, the topic that there is real evil in the world. Um, We may not always think of nature as being an evil and destructive force. Um, And in the modern world, we've kind of got a handle on nature uh, to a large degree. We can predict predict the weather. We can avoid many of the disasters that nature hurls at us. Although I think the current COVID era is a good reminder uh, that that we don't really control nature and that nature actually can be uh, an evil force. Um, uh, of course, uh, it's, not, it's not inherently evil, uh, but it can bring devastation to the world. And we see right now that already uh, almost three and a half million people are uh, infected with the COVID virus, uh, some 250,000 deaths. And so we, we know that that's not, that's not a good thing, right? It is, it is a kind of evil. It is a kind of destruction uh, that, that nature can hurl at us. And not to mention the economic devastation and unemployment and, and people even starving as a result. Uh, and this is not natural. This is not the way God created the world. Uh, but it has been turned into destructive, uh, a destructive force because of sin. 
Uh, and then, of course, we see Jesus' power over evil beings uh, also, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Um, they're here, right? There is real evil in the world, and it has power and influence over our life. Uh, and then, of course, we see finally the reality of sin. Um, uh, so, so the good news in all this, and what we want to talk about this morning, is that while there is evil around us, in terms of the spiritual realm, there is evil. In, in, in nature, it's twisted and sometimes against us. It can be very destructive. And certainly we know the damaging effects of sin. Um, as, as, uh, and we see that during this, this era of COVID. We see the hatred and prejudice and greed and vice and corruption and injustice um, that, that turns people against each other and that, that makes life hard. But the good news in all this and the, the message that, that these stories tell us is that Jesus is the overcomer. That there is hope in Christ and He is the one who is ultimately in control and who overcomes the world. Uh, so let's look at uh, how this works and break this down. And This is not going to be new. It's not like probably you're going to say, wow, I didn't know Jesus could overcome evil and sin. Uh, we know that. But it's good to be reminded especially when things can be discouraging when all around us we see bad news, that Jesus is the good news. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the problem of evil. Uh, and it is a problem, and I'm not going to pretend to answer the question, why did God allow evil in the world? Uh, I'll let Nathan do that on another day. <laughs> right, Nathan? <laughs> yeah, sure, he's all over that one. Hard question, complicated and uh, there are answers, but uh, a Sunday morning, 30 minutes, would not be an adequate amount of time to deal with it. Uh, but, but, but it's important to note, note what happens in this passage. And it's fascinating what happens with Jesus and the demons and the pigs. Uh, there is this problem of evil in the world. And it's here. And so Jesus uh, gets in the boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee. He calms the storm. And after that, they sail on to the opposite side, opposite Capernaum, where they set out to the place called Gedarenes, uh, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there, when they step out of the boat, they are met by two crazy men uh, who are demon-possessed or demonized. And it says they came out of the tomb, so they were living in the tombs, um, a, a place of uncleanness. And it says, so fierce were they that no one could pass this way. And so they came down thinking that they were going to halt Jesus and his company as well. And, uh, and these guys were violent. The, the, they were under such oppression by these demons that they were extremely dangerous. But when they recognized who it was, and it's interesting that these demons recognize who it is. They cry out. Okay? And they don't just cry out uh, in, a, in a shout, but there's some fear in this crying out. They cry out, What have you to do with this, O Son of God? And while people do not see fully who Jesus is, uh, demons see in the spiritual realm, they see with spiritual eyes. And they, they know who Jesus is. They've met him before. The God of all creation, the eternal Son of God. They know who he is. Uh, and, and they don't take that lightly. Uh, and they say, have you come to torment us before our time? Um, they're worried that Jesus, and they know that Jesus is not only someone they've encountered before as the God of all creation, the God before time, but they also know that Jesus is the one they will meet at the end. That they have been given a specific season or time when they can uh, have their fun and games. Where they can wreak havoc on the earth. And they say to Jesus, have you come 
to cut short our fun. Right? Have you come before the time? And they, they know that the time has not yet come. But here's Jesus. And they want to know, are you sending us to torment? Are you, um, are you coming to judge us? Uh, so they know who he is. And, and we see in this that, uh, that this time of evil is set. It's fixed. So we, don't, we, we can't really answer necessarily why Jesus has allowed it, but we do know that he's only allowed it for a, a set time. And, of course, we're still in that time. But uh, the demons know that at the end, at the end time, that Jesus will put a stop to evil and he will cast them out uh, once and for all. Uh, but, but what's interesting here is that it's very clear that Jesus has authority over them. Jesus has control over them. And we see that by their, by their next word. They say, now a herd of pigs was feeding some distance from them, and the demons begged him, they begged Jesus uh, to send them into the herd of pigs. In other words, these demons recognize that they're in the presence of one from whom they must get permission. Right? They can't just go and do whatever they want. Uh, there is evil in the world, but evil is constrained by a greater power uh, from which they must get permission. We see that all the way back in the book of Job when Satan himself uh, goes before God and he gets permission to plague uh, uh, Job with, with all of the trouble he poured out on him. And same thing here. They recognize that they're not free to go and do whatever they want. And they see the handwriting on the wall. It says, if you're going to uh, cast us out, and in Greek there's a way to say that what it really means is when. <laughs> it's not, it's not like, like, like it's an option. They know Jesus is going to command them to leave these two men who they're oppressing. Um, but they're not free to just go wherever. And if they want to invade this herd of pigs, they need Jesus' permission. Now, that's all well and good, uh, except for one thing. Uh, Jesus gives them permission, right? He gives them permission to invade this herd of pigs. And then immediately, this herd of pigs, uh, Mark tells us that it's about 2,000 pigs. This is not just a little herd of 20. 2,000 pigs. Uh, and, and it's a sign that these demons, as we know also from Mark and Luke, that they are not just one demon, there are many, thousands of them, thousands of them, which could uh, contribute to why they're so fierce and so violent. Uh, they invade the pigs, and immediately the pigs rush down the, the steep hillside, plunge into the Sea of Galilee, and all drown. Uh, the silence after that would have been kind of like the silence after the storm. I'm sure everybody was like, whoa, did not see that coming, Right? as all these dead pigs are floating in the Sea of Galilee. Anybody want to go fishing? Maybe not. So, so, um, so did Jesus not see this coming? Right? Some commentators speculate that the demons didn't even see this coming, that uh, when the demons invaded the pigs, the freak, pigs kind of went crazy and freaked out, and, uh, and, and that, that maybe Jesus knew what happened, but the demons didn't. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, these demons... We're in the business of controlling, right? They were in control of these two men. And these are two men created in God's image with human will. Uh, and they knew how to control. And, and not just control a little, but to completely control the lives of these two guys. That's what demons do, right? That's their game, is taking over and taking control. And I think uh, controlling pigs would not have been hard for them. I think they knew what they were doing. And uh, it's, it's the purpose and goal of evil to bring destruction, to bring death, right? 
And uh, it was kind of like the, their last parting shot to Jesus to say, Ha, there you go. We just killed 2,000 pigs. Now, of course, for Jews, the Jews wouldn't have been uh, terribly disappointed. And by the way, the Gadarenes was not Jewish. It was in the Decapolis. It was primarily Gentile. Uh, certainly, if they were raising pigs, these were not Jews, right? These were Gentiles. Uh, and so uh, for the Jewish people, maybe listening to the story or for his disciples, they may have been thinking, well, it's good to get rid of those pigs. They're unclean, right? Um, but still, they're, they're, they're part of God's creation. And we know that God loves all of his creation, even pigs. And so um, this kind of mass destruction is evil, right? And I think the, the demons knew what they were doing. And the, and the question is, why does Jesus allow this, right? Jesus, who knows, who, who outsmarts every spirit, every being, Je- Jesus is not caught off guard by like this. Jesus is not going, oh man, I just didn't, I didn't see that coming. Who knew that they would do that? Who knew that these demons would be so destructive? Of course not. Jesus knew. And yet, he gives them permission. He turns them loose to wreak their destructive chaos on the world. Now, like I said, I... I I'm not even going to try to answer the question why. And one of the reasons I'm not going to try to answer it, I, I could give you some answers why, but you wouldn't like any of the answers. I know, because I don't like any of the answers, right? It's like, no, no, that's not good enough for me. But you know what? We're not God, right? And we have to trust the wisdom and the love and the power of God that when he set it up this way, uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, but really, there's a better, a more important question. And the question is not so much why, is what do we do about it? Because what we see here is this is the reality of the world we live in. We live in a world where, where evil, for whatever reasons, has been set to run free. Uh, somewhat restrained, okay, it's still under God's ultimate control. But, but God and Jesus have given a, a great deal of permission and freedom to evil. Uh, the earth, the world, is under a curse, and so viruses like the coronavirus uh, can run rampant, uh, and God does not stop it. Right? He does not intervene. Um, uh, other natural disasters, other demonic forces and powers, uh, sin itself runs rampant in the world. And we see all around the hate, and, and, the, and as I said, the prejudice, the corruption, uh, the greed, and the selfishness that's all around us. And, and even in our own life. And, and yet God sees it, He understands it, He knows it, but He's chosen for a season to let it go. So the question for us is not, is not why, but what do we do about it, right? What do we do when we live in a place that is really quite dangerous, that we're, we're, we are surrounded by all kinds of evil, an evil that is intent on your and my destruction, Right? Evil is not just trying to mess around with, you know, uh, us just to play tricks. It's out to destroy us, right? Uh, Satan's goal, the goal of these demons is to destroy everything good that God created. So what do we do about it? Uh, well, we see in this story uh, what, what we do about it. Um, and ultimately what we do is we turn to Jesus who has the power to break every chain. Power and authority to overcome all the evil that exists around us. Uh, let's go back to these two demonized guys. We talked a little bit about the demons, and the guys themselves are kind of just background <laughs> props. You know, uh, the story's not really a lot about them. Um, 
But it is important because in the end, they're the ones who have been set free. And uh, they are human beings made in God's image. And however they got to this place, we don't know. But they got to a place where they were terribly controlled by demons. The word literally, uh, demon-possessed, uh, is how we translate it in English. But the Greek word is to be demonized. It means to attack or to be plagued or be tormented by demons. And ultimately, it has this idea of the demons taking control over your life. Uh, most, most significantly, whatever demon possession is, what it is, uh, most importantly, is it is giving uh, them control and power over their life. These men were not free to do their own thing. Right? They weren't living in the tombs on the side of the Sea of Galilee because the view was great. Although I'm sure the view was actually quite good. Um, beautiful sunsets from there. But that's not why they were there. Right? Um, they were living in a very un, unholy and unclean place. Uh, they were cut off. Uh, they, they were social distancing. Right? Um, and, and not only were they social distancing, but like, like some crazy people at Macro, they were chasing away people who were uh, trying to get too close, right? Uh, they, they wanted to be alone. And that's the sign of evil. Right? God created us for relationship, for community and fellowship. And one of the things that we all feel right now is this loss of community and communion and fellowship. You know, connecting with people through a, a phone is just not the same as in person. Right? We feel that. Um, and that's, that's the effect of evil. Evil separates people and isolates people. And here are these guys. Uh, they weren't living there because they were hermits who liked to be alone. They were there because they were under the control of these demons who had driven them off to a life that was like, more like an animal than like a human. Where they had been stripped of dignity. Where they had been stripped of relationships. Where they had been stripped of self-control. And they were under the control and dominion of these evil spirits who were using them for their own purposes, ultimately to destroy them and to make them in every way less than human. Um, uh, and they were violent. Uh, they were oppressive. They were destructive. Right? Well, we may look at this story and, and say, wow, I'm so glad we live in an age where apparently this doesn't happen anymore. Right? That we live in a time where, I don't know what happened to the demons, but they don't seem to be around. And if you come from uh, the Western world, from Western cultures, uh, we've kind of dis disinfected our lives, in a sense, from this kind of in-your-face demons. Um, that's not true in other parts of the world. Here in Thailand, there's a very real sense of, uh, of spirits and of evil spirits and of demons. And uh, they, they know about them. Um, but, but more importantly, whether we, whether we think about them as being like this, where they come in and they, they, they just take over your life like this, the reality is that for all of us, uh, we have the risk of falling under the control of evil and evil forces and evil spirits. And the reality is that the demons and Satan, he's not stupid, uh, and, and he knows how to adapt to the times, right? So just because we don't see people living in graveyards, super violent and crazy, doesn't mean that evil is not still seeking to control us and is being successful at many, at many levels. Uh, so so the, the goal of demons is not to make people crazy, it is to control them, to take over their life and to divert their life away from serving God and towards serving self and towards ultimately serving Satan. Well, how do they do this? Well, 
uh, without going into a lot of the theology of demons, we know that, for one, they do need permission. And ultimately, they do need the invitation of the person they want to uh, take over their life. Uh, They do not take over people's lives without us, at some level, inviting them. Uh, So how does this work? Well, it's it's a lot like fishing. Demons are actually really good fishermen. And if you've ever fished, you know that uh, to, to fish, you don't just go up to a lake and say, here, fishy, 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 and they all come swimming up to you and you just grab them. It doesn't work that way, right? You need some tools. You need some, uh, a pole, and you need a line, and you need a hook, right? And not only do you need a hook, uh, which you use to, to, to snag them, to snare them, but you need something to put on the hook that the fish will bite, right? You need some kind of bait. And so the fisherman... Uh, Studies the fish and he tries to find out what the fish are eating and what they like and what would be appealing to them at that moment. And that's what they put and dangle out before the fish so the fish will bite the hook. And when they do, they pull the line and set the hook into the fish's mouth and then they have control. Well, that's what Satan does. That's what demons do. Right? He is a liar. He is the master of deception. And he is good at baiting the hook, right? Now, he just doesn't dangle a bare hook out there, sharp and jagged, and saying, grab this, right? We see that's destruction. What he does is he puts bait on the hook to make it look attractive. And this was true all the way back with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? This was Satan's strategy with Adam and Eve before there was sin, when everything was created good and perfect, And uh, Satan came to Adam and Eve, and he started questioning God's goodness. He said, did God really say you would die? I think God was lying, right? That's what's implied in in that question. And then he says, God knows that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you will be like him. And that's a good thing. Don't you want to be like God? And, and see, Satan starts raising doubt and suspicion. And it goes like this. It's like, God is holding out on you. Like, God's made this garden to make you think he loves you and to make you think that he wants to take care of you. But the reality is, God is holding out the best. Right? He knows the best thing is that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told you, you can't have it. See, there is something missing from your life. And God's not going to give it to you. And you're not going to be happy or fulfilled until you get uh, that thing that's missing. And that's been the lie of Satan ever since. It takes many different shapes and forms, and he used many different ways to put it out there. But ultimately, that's what Satan does to trap us. He says, God doesn't really love you. Why would God love you? You're such a horrible person. Why would God love somebody like you? God's not really going to give you what what you need. He's holding out on you, right? God doesn't really care about you. But ha, I do. And I know what you need. I know what's missing from your life. And here it is. And he puts out that bait. He says, look, if you had this, then you would really be happy. Your life would really be good, right? You would be fulfilled. And you would be... uh, your, your life would be complete. Right? And he says, I've got just what you need. Right? And we, 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 we believe Satan. We listen to his lie. 
And we doubt God's love, we doubt God's goodness, and we say, you know, I think Satan is right. I don't think I could ever be happy unless I have that thing in my life. Well, what is that thing? What is it that's missing? Well, it can be anything and actually everything that we seek to bring us joy or fulfillment or purpose or pleasure or success. Every good thing that God has promised us, but apart from God. Every good thing that God has promised us, but apart from Him. Right? It is turning away from God and saying, God, we don't believe you love us or care for us. And so we turn away from Him and we seek uh, what we need for our life apart from God. And if it's apart from God, it's ultimately from Satan. And it is ultimately rebellion. Right? It is turning away from God. It is rebelling against Him. It is not trusting His love. Uh, so does that mean that Christians can be demonized? Well, at some level, yes. Right? Now, certainly we can't be demonized like these two guys were. Praise God that when we trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and greater is He that is in us than, than, than is in the world. Right? Uh, Satan cannot invade our life and take total control like he did with these two guys if we have Christ in us. Praise God for that. But can Satan still tempt us? Can Satan still dangle his bait before us? Can his demons still attack us with lies and deception? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's super easy to buy into it and to follow it. And, and what happens when we do that? When we take the bait, uh, Satan's hook gets in us. Right? His hook gets in us. And Satan then has power over our life to control us. Not completely. Not like these two guys. But Satan can still jerk pretty hard on that line. And he can drag us deeper and deeper into sin. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's talking to Christians here. Right? He's not talking to people who don't know Him. And he says, look, yeah, you can present yourselves as obedience to sin. You can bite that hook and you can give Satan control over your life. So we, while we may not be demonized like these two guys were, uh, the truth is we need the same deliverance. We all need uh, somebody who can set us free. And praise God, Jesus is the one who breaks the chains. Uh, Jesus commands them to go. And in a moment, all the demons, 2,000 or thousands, however many there were, every one of them, every last one of them, flees out from these two guys. And they invade the herd of pigs. Jesus sets them free. Uh, Matthew, who's, who, who always abbreviates his stories, he gives the abridged, uh, the abridged version, the short version, he does not tell us what happens to these guys, but, uh, but we know from Mark and Luke that they are changed men. They are free. They are no longer under the control and dominion of Satan. They are set free. And that's what Jesus does. He sets prisoners free by breaking the chains that hold them captive. Right? Um, but it's interesting that in this story, we know uh, from what happens next, the herdsmen flee, they go to the city, and they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. 
And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged Jesus to leave their region. Right, you can imagine these guys coming from the city, and they see these two men who had been so fierce, who had this reputation as, being, as terrifying the, the neighborhood, so to speak. And there in the, in the sea are all these thousands of dead pigs floating up onto the shore. Lovely sight, right? Um, and what are they worried about? What are they focused on? What do they care about? Well, what they care about are the dead pigs. Right? Uh, they're, they're very little concerned about these two guys who have been given their life back. What they're worried about is the economic loss that they've just suffered. Right? They care more about pigs than people. Right? And unfortunately, that's oftentimes the way the world is, and that's certainly the way Satan is. Uh, they didn't care that these men had got their life back. And it's just a good reminder to us that there is always a price to pay. And in this case, the price was pretty high. Now, I don't know what a pig cost back then, but I know what a pig costs now. It's, 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 it's actually a chunk of money. Right? A pig actually has quite a value. And if there were thousands of them, uh, the cost involved here was extremely high. Uh, and some could argue, well, maybe it was worth it to save them, but was it really worth that price? Right? Like that seems like an awfully huge price to pay just to save two guys who probably asked for it anyway. But I think Jesus would answer, absolutely not. These guys were worth it. Right? They were worth the 2,000 pigs, or whatever the cost was. And we know that Jesus would say that because ultimately Jesus himself would pay even a higher price to break the chains and to set the captives free. As we celebrated this morning with communion, ultimately Jesus paid the price with his own life and his own blood, his own body as a sacrifice for sin. But he determined that it was worth the price. Not because we were worth more than him, but because it was worth it to him to see us set free from the bondage of sin and death. Um, what do we value? Right? What do we value most? Praise God that what God values most is you and I. Right? He values people. And there is no price too high that Jesus would not pay, that God would not pay to redeem us. Well, then there's the next story. Um, so they beg Jesus to leave, and, and Jesus um, does. He doesn't argue with them. He says, okay, if you don't want my help, I'm, I'm out of here. So getting into a boat, he crossed over to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I love this story um, because um, it just seems like Jesus kind of misses the point here. Um, uh, Jesus shows back up in Capernaum and um, uh, th this is the same story in Luke and Mark of the guys bringing the guy and digging through the roof, same story. But again, uh, Matthew gets to, the, he gets to the main point. Right? He leaves out all what he thinks are not important details for his point. Uh, and, and, um, and so they bring this man and, and Jesus um, is impressed with their faith. right? The faith that would bring one who's also dealing with a kind of bondage, right? He's paralyzed. Uh, but when they bring him and they lay him out before Jesus, Jesus says to this man, uh, take heart, be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, and um, 
we, we all go, well, well, wait, Jesus, that's actually not the obvious problem here, right? Um, don't you see? He, he can't walk, right? He's, he's paralyzed, right? Why are you forgiving his sins when that's not really what they're probably after? And his friends are probably thinking the same thing. It's like, uh, that's not really what we were going for here, right? It'd be kind of like going to a doctor with a bright red rash all over your body. Your face is just covered with this inflaming red red rash. It's like neon. And you go into the doctor's office and the doctor comes in and he says, oh my goodness, look at that arm. Don't worry, we'll put a cast on that arm and we'll fix you up in no time. Or you kind of would lack confidence in the doctor if uh, you come with a rash and he wants to fix a broken arm. Uh, that seems like what's going on here. Like Jesus has misdiagnosed the problem. Like he doesn't see the obvious. But of course we know that this man actually came with two serious problems. One, uh, he was paralyzed. But more importantly, or also, he was, uh, he was under the, the, the bondage of sin. And, and what's interesting is it may be, even though it seems uh, somewhat insensitive to us, that Jesus uh, seems to ignore his paralysis, um, Jesus actually may have been more tuned into the man than, than we, we than we understand or know. And the reason we know that is because of the words that Jesus says to him. He says, take heart, be encouraged, my son. Right? Jesus is not being insensitive here. Jesus is very tuned into this man's needs. And, um, and it could very well be that, uh, that this man was consumed by guilt, consumed by his sins. And we don't know. Uh, sin is certainly at the root of everything broken in this world. But it can be the cause directly or indirectly. So an example of sin as the direct cause of brokenness would be drunk driving. A person drinks too much and they uh, get into a, a, an accident and they injure themselves or others or kill somebody. That's a direct cause of their sin. Uh, but, but we all live under the curse of sin. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell into brokenness and God cursed it. And so we all live under the indirect uh, curse of sin, right? Um, we don't know what the case was with this guy, but it could be because, of, because Jesus starts with forgiveness that, that he had done something that brought about this paralysis. Right? Maybe he had been drinking and, uh, and, and fell off of a roof or uh, in some way injured himself because of his sin. Right? Uh, certainly Jesus is sensitive to that. And so he says, take heart, be encouraged. It's going to be okay my son, my child. He says this with words of affection and compassion, that he is sensitive to what's going on in this guy's life. Um, and and uh, whatever the case, uh, Jesus understands that the greater of his problems, his sin problem and his, his paralysis, the greater of the problems is sin. And so Jesus deals with that one first. And he forgives his sins. Um, but in the crowd are some scribes, some religious leaders, who are offended by Jesus' words. Uh, they're offended and they see it as blasphemy. And they say to themselves, this man is blasphemy. Well, what is it about Jesus here that's blasphemy? Well, uh, ultimately the Jews understood that all sin was ultimately a sin against God. So when you murdered, obviously it was a sin against the person you murdered. But uh, it was also even more so a sin against God because God created that person. God was in a sense the owner of that person. And so uh, every sin is ultimately not a sin just against a human being, but
but is at, a, at the greatest level, it's a sin against God. And, and only God can, can forgive. Only God can say, I forgive because the offense is against Him. And so when Jesus said, I forgive you, He is ultimately putting Himself in the place of God. He's saying, I can speak for God on this. I can speak with God's voice, and I can say that God is telling you, you are forgiven. And, and the scribes understood probably correctly that if Jesus were not God, this would be blasphemy. But Jesus knows their hearts, and it says... Why do you think evil in your hearts? Uh, had these guys been genuinely concerned about the holiness of God, uh, Jesus would have taken another angle. But the truth is that these men were jealous of Jesus. They did not like Jesus. There was evil in their heart. And they really were not that concerned about God's holiness. And Jesus sees through not only their words, but to the depths of their heart. And then Jesus says to them, uh, Which is easier to say? Uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Okay, which is easier to say? Honestly, this, this verse has always confused me, because I'm not actually sure what the right answer is. Okay, so my little crowd here, you can do this at home. Uh, let, raise of hands. How many of you say, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Okay, nobody here said that, so you can't see. Nobody here said that. How many of you, so I'm saying, and the rest of you, how many of you say, it's easier to say, rise and walk? Oh, they wouldn't vote on that one either. You guys, you have to vote, right? You guys are cheaters. Uh, which, is, which is easier? Well, here's the thing. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because who knows different, right? Who knows? Now, if we're talking about what's easier to do, actually forgiving sins is harder. To, to, to make somebody cleanse of their sins is much harder. But there's no way to prove it, right? If I say your sins are forgiven, there's no way to test that. So, so actually saying your sins are forgiven is easier to say, might be harder to do, to do. If I say, get up and walk, and it doesn't happen, then I have proof right there that it's just empty words, right? Uh, and, and so that's the accusation. Jesus is saying, you think I just have empty words, you think there's no authority behind my words to, con, uh, to, to forgive sin. But I'll show you that my words are not empty words. Right? Um, because I have power not only to forgive, but to tell this man to rise up and walk. So he turns to the man and he says, Hey, get up, take up your bed and go home. And boom, like that, the guy gets up. And, and, and uh, it's likely that this, this man was paralyzed like quadriplegic, like totally paralyzed and instantly he is healed he gets up he picks up his bed and he goes home right and Jesus shows that he has power that his words are not empty right which is easy, which, whichever is easier to say certainly what is what Jesus does shows that he has power to do both he has power to do both um, it's proof that that he has the authority he could not be a blasphemer and a healer. Right? He has the power and authority of God to, to, to do God's work on earth, to forgive, to heal, to control the wind and the waves and the forces of nature, to speak to demon hordes and they obey Him. Jesus can do it. Um, he is the one who can do something about it. So let me just close with this thought. As we wrap this up, um, 
What do, we, what do we do with these words? How is there hope and encouragement for us? Um, it's interesting that in both of these stories at the end, the crowds watching respond in very similar manners. Right? Uh, at the Gadarenes with the demon-possessed guys, it says, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Okay, they, they were afraid of Jesus, but they saw Jesus just as one more powerful spirit they couldn't control. For, for them, Jesus wasn't really any better than the demons who had, who had oppressed these two guys. It was just some powerful force that they could not reckon with, and they didn't want to deal with, and so they sent him away. But in the story of, of the paralytic, it ends this way. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Okay, They were just as afraid. They saw what Jesus did, and it kind of unraveled them. But notice what they said. They didn't say, Jesus, get out of here. Instead, they glorified God who had given such authority to a human being. They worshiped God. They glorified God. They were afraid, but they worshiped God. That this is Jesus who has some kind of crazy authority over powers, over forces in the world. Uh, He is king. He's powerful. He is a judge. Like, if he can forgive sins, that means he can judge sin. And if he's judge, it means he's one to whom we must answer. It means one day we will stand before Jesus and we will give an account. And he will ask us what we have done with our life. That should make us fearful. But instead of seeing it as a, uh, an evil thing that they had to get rid of, they worshipped God. That God had sent one with such authority into the world. Why? Because they saw that Jesus was one that could do something about the evil in their life. He may not banish it, but he could help them face the evil that is all around them. He's the one who can do something about our problems. Have you ever been uh, uh, at a business or a store or maybe at some government office where you needed answers or you needed help, uh, and, and you go to them and all you get is blank looks, right? And you ask questions and they, they don't give answers. We, we have had a situation going on with our life like that for a number of years as we we're trying uh, to adopt um, our, our granddaughters. And uh, it involves working with the local government orphanage. And the caseworker there is one who needs to collect all this data and put it into a file and mail it to Bangkok. That's all they have to do, right? And for about three years, we have been uh, waiting for her to do this. Um, And uh, after many months and many years and many visits to see this lady, it became very clear that she was not something who was going to do something about it, right? So I'm thinking, okay, we need to find the next person up who can make her. Who's going to do something about this? Well, a few months ago, we had the opportunity to meet her boss. And I thought, her boss? Now, this is somebody with authority. This is somebody who, you know, she's in charge of this person. She can do something about it. So we laid our case out before her. And she also, it became very clear as we're talking to her. She said, I I don't know what to do. She had the same, like, confused look on her face. She was clearly not somebody who could do something about it. And it was pretty discouraging for us because we were like, okay, if her boss can't do something about it, who can do something about it? And so we were praying, and, and we'd been praying for a long time, and praying, well, uh, out of the blue, one day God sent this uh, angel, this uh, Thai person, 
who could do something about it. And I won't go into all the stories of how we met her, but uh, she's somebody I had known before and somebody who is very high up and very powerful in the Thai government. And she found out about our case. And right there on the spot, she starts making phone calls. And not only is she somebody who can do something about it, right on the spot, she's somebody who starts doing something about it. And she lights a fire under all these people and starts saying, why is this taking so long? Why is this not done? And praise God, um, uh, since then, things are happening, right? Because she was the one who could do something about it. Well, that's who Jesus is, right? When we face demons around us, evil spirits oppressing us, when we face coronaviruses that would threaten to kill us and to turn the whole world economy upside down, uh, who can do something about it? Jesus, right? Jesus has authority over everything. And while he has not promised yet to eradicate evil, for those who come to him for help, he has promised to do something about it. Right? He has promised to do something if we go to him. Right? And he is to be feared, but he is to be worshipped. Let me just close with this uh, passage from Psalm 50, which puts these two things together. Right? Uh, acknowledging him as the authority who has the power to do something about it and giving him thanks for it, but also seeking his help. Psalms 50 says this, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, your vows of your promise to praise him. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. All Jesus asks is that we come to him. Like those men bringing that man on the stretcher, that we bring our problems to him with faith. That Jesus can and has promised to do something about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the great and mighty God who has authority over the wind and the waves that you command all the evil uh, demon hordes and they obey you. That you have the power through your own death and through your cross to forgive sin. That you paid the ultimate price because uh, it was worth it to redeem lost sinners who you love and who you cared for. Uh, Lord Jesus, help us to trust you and not be discouraged by all the evil and destruction we see around us. Uh, To not listen to the lies of Satan who would say, see, this is proof that God just doesn't care. Lord, we would know that that's a lie of Satan and that you are a God who loves and who cares and who invites us to come to you and ask for help. And you have promised, I will deliver and you will glorify me. Lord, may we be people who praise you and who worship you, who glorify you as the King of kings, who has authority over every problem and every difficulty. And Lord, may we have faith to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. authority on earth.
Jesus is in control. And so I think in response, let's just take a moment and realize that truth. He has authority over all things, over this virus. He has authority over your family, over the things that are happening in your life. And he has authority here at this church. He has authority in your living room, on your sofa. You're going to go back to your to the rest of your Sunday really soon. But right now, just take this moment, cement this idea in our hearts that Jesus Christ has the authority. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.